Hi, my name is Lena, and I'm going to be reading Chapter 6 of Shingwak's Vision, A History of Native Residential Schools by J.R. Miller. Um, I am going to try to do this with as little editing as possible. So if I mess up, that's fine. We're going to treat it like we're having a conversation. And uh, I'll just correct myself, I suppose. On the same note... I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, so I'm going to um, probably stop sometimes to highlight things or just give my own thoughts. And that's how it's going to be. So, here we go. You got this, boys. Chapter 6. To have the Indian educated out of them. Classroom and class. The bell rings at 6 o'clock in the morning. Everyone washes, gets dressed, and the business of the day begins. The boys go out and do chores. There are 34 head of cattle to feed, milking to be done, wood to carry, walks to sweep, stables to clean, in fact a regular round that any farm boy knows. While they're engaged in this, the girls are getting breakfast. No hit and miss preparation here, but each to her task and they are taught to start the day right, with a well-cooked, wholesome breakfast which comes to the table at 7. At 7.30, all gather for prayers. Only 20 minutes, but one of the great lessons has been taught. It is close to 8 o'clock, and the boys line up to receive instructions for the day's work. Half of the boys work during the morning, while the other half goes to school. Between the line-up time and school hours, they go out and play. The girls get at their homework scrubbing, sweeping, dusting, and making beds. Even the tiniest do their little tasks if it's only to gather up the hymn books or straighten the chairs. They're little housekeepers in the making. At 8.45, the boys and girls get in line for inspection and march into school. School dismisses for dinner at 11.45. That gives the girls time to set the tables and put on the dinner, eat, and clear up again. At 4 o'clock, school lets out for the day, and there's another playtime. Supper is at 5.30, and then, while the girls clear away, the boys do the evening chores. In the evening, there is quite a little spare time. High school and entrance students study until 9 o'clock. The little children go to bed immediately after evening prayers. In the winter, they are tucked away about 7 and in the summer at dark. The matter of class dominated native residential schools in at least two ways. The classroom was, ostensibly at least, the place where the most important function of the entire enterprise, teaching, occurred. There, students expected to receive the whole white man's learning, or the magic art of writing, the skills that would enable them to cope with and participate successfully in the new economy and society that came to them, willy-nilly, from the later part of the 19th century onwards. But class was present in residential schools in another sense as well, never far below the surface of the day-to-day -day instruction in academic or vocational or technical subjects lay competing notions of the Aboriginal student's social potential. Did the native child have the intellectual raw material to aspire to the full range of opportunities that Euro-Canadian schooling offered? Or was there some racially determined limitation that restricted how far they might advance those scholastic... Scol... I don't know that word. Scholastically... Oh, like scholastic books, both scholastically and socially in Canada. Rival assumptions about the native child and, by implication, about the Indian and Inuit race 
were never sorted out. The government and church officials who established the schools never clarified what the native population was capable of, either in the classroom or in class yeah, or in class terms after children left the schools. Such ambiguity made it all the easier to blame the victim when the residential schools failed as as purveyors of Euro-Canadian education, and blaming Indians for the school's shortcomings in turn set up a syndrome in which the educational function of residential schools was further impaired. In short, the bias on which residential schools were established made it unlikely that they would succeed in either sense of class, instruction, or social mobility. Some of the confusion and ambiguity that lay behind residential schools stemmed from constitutional sources. The federal government had jurisdiction over Indians and lands reserved for Indians. While the provinces were responsible, with but minor and ultimately ineffectual qualifications, for elementary and secondary education. This meant, of course, that when Ottawa turned to the implementation of a system of Indian schooling in the 1870s and 1880s, it did so without any background, personnel, or bureaucratic infrastructure. What experience Indian affairs had with schooling, and there was some stretching back at least as far as abortive experiments in Upper Canada, was as a func funding agency for the Christian denominations, who usually imparted at least rudimentary classroom instruction at their missions. Inexperience was a major part of the reason that the federal government, after the last Western Treaty was made in 1877, turned automatically to the missionary organizations to carry out their pedagogical program. But Ottawa's lack of direct involvement in and experience with education would remain a permanent obstacle to these schools' success. If constitutional uncertainty undermined the way that Indian schools were established and operated, another type of ambiguity dogged the actual operation of the schools. There was no consensus on the intellectual nature and potential of Indians, and later of Inuit as well. To put it simply, there was no agreement in either government or church about the degree to which natives' innate ability and character made it possible for their children to take full advantage of whatever schooling might be provided to them by whatever agency, at whichever level of government. In part, this lack of agreement on assumptions about the potential of the Aboriginal race was rooted in the intellectual poverty of social sciences in the 19th century. In the absence of anything approaching what the 19th of the... Blah, 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 blah. In the absence of any... Yeah, oh my god. Okay, hold on. We got this. In the absence of anything approaching what the 20th century would come to know as cultural anthropology, an understanding of the qualities of the different racial groups throughout the world was simply unavailable. In fact, had consensus about racial groups existed among 19th century social scientists, it probably would have held that the native peoples were intellectually inferior to Caucasians. This was the era when scientific racism reigned in Western societies, thanks mainly to the per pernicious influence of British, American, German, and French intellectuals. However, such views did not hold total sway in Canada, though they did have influence. Had scientific proofs of the intellectual inferiority of non-Caucasian peoples been subscribed generally by... Yeah. Had scientific proofs of the intellectual inferiority of non-Caucasian peoples been subscribed to generally by government and church officials, 
No experiment in Indian schooling, let alone the ambiguous industrial schools after 1883, would have been attempted. What would have been the point? Ambivalence about natives' innate ability manifested itself in the attitudes towards schooling native children held by both missionaries and government officials. Clerics and bureaucrats frequently commented on the mental quickness or the natural intelligence of the Indian, and they often noted as well the admirable ethical qualities of Aboriginal society in its undisturbed state. At times, this latter view could take the form of an observation that a particular group of Indians are fairly intelligent and were quite honest before they were influenced by the white man. The deputy minister responsible for Indian policy at the time, the industrial schools... Yeah, oh, yeah, I got it. The deputy minister responsible for Indian policy at the time, the industrial schools were developed, thought that Indians as a rule are as intelligent and amenable to reason as white men. A day school teacher in 1923 opined, the Indian children are intelligent and if given a proper chance, will give a good account of themselves at school. Since the pop since the problem was not lack of intelligence, education might be the solution. As the department's annual report put it in the mid <coughs> we good. <clears throat> As the department's annual report put it in the mid eighteen nineties, the Indian problem is it exists owing to the fact that the Indian is untrained to take his place in the world. Once teach him to do this and the solution is had. It seemed clear to many missionaries that the innately intelligent native children lacked only instruction and enhancement of their undeveloped moral senses. I'm going to highlight that, actually. Um, so, it seemed clear to many missionaries. So, to many missionaries, um, the innately intelligent native children lacked only instruction and enhancement of their undeveloped moral senses. There you go. As one West Coast missionary put it, they are like overgrown children without much bringing up. A prairie evangelist of many years' experience observed that moral strength is the element in their natures that is so lacking. This moral insufficiency allegedly manifested itself in many disturbing forms. The Indian Workers Association of the Presbyterian Church for Saskatchewan and Manitoba thought that small boarding schools were better than either large and impersonal industrial institutions or day schools when dealing with half-grown boys and girls, even upon nominally Christian reserves, who are imbued with immoral ideals regarding sexual relations. Such jaundiced views might be hard to reconcile with the rosier opinions of missionaries who considered Indians moral until corrupted, but such contradictory opinions were common in the ranks of evangelical organizations. In any event, whether through prolonged contact with Europeans or not, Native morality was sufficiently debased to justify missions in general and residential schools for the children in particular. Such attitudes about the innate intelligence and dubious morality of Native peoples were tied to primitive notions of intellectual development, a kind of crude evolutionary dogma that recognized that particular societies often went through successive changes of e successive stages of economic and social organization without much appreciation of either the particulars of each stage or the mechanics by which a people move from one to another, usually higher level. 
culminating in the achievement of civilization. These ominously fuzzy notions of human development usually made quixotic use of the historical evidence to sustain themselves and to assist in predicting future developments. On the whole, propagators of such theories tended to use history as an inebriate uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. In particular, there was never any recognition that their own societies in Europe had taken centuries to master a written language, evolve from migratory to sedentary living, and fashion the social and political mechanisms that enabled them to work peacefully and efficiently. Okay, but calling Europe peaceful, though? <laughs> um, it was an unstated and untested assumption of the 19th century education enthusiasts that native schooling could, given the mental quickness of these fairly intelligent people, succeed swiftly, relatively painlessly, and above all, economically. These jejun and amorphous attitudes about the intellectual potential of native peoples were reflected in a residential school curriculum that was vague, nonspecific, and hortatory. Hortatory? Both for academic instruction and vocational training. What coherence the curriculum had was implicit, or hidden, in keeping with instructional regimes aimed at groups that mainstream society regarded as marginal or deviant. It, stretched, it stressed moral redemption. I'm going to highlight that as well, moral redemption. I feel like by me saying that, hopefully, like, I'm either helping myself study or helping someone else study. So there we go. <laughs> Moral redemption. On the surface, curricular statements were hazy, as in the case of the annual report of the Department of Indian Affairs in the mid-1890s that talked of a school program that aimed to develop all the abilities, remove prejudice against labor, and give courage to compete with the rest of the world. The initial curriculum provided for instruction in six forms or standards, which is the usual terminology of the time and the content of the authorized instruction in English, general knowledge, writing, arithmetic, geography, history, ethics, reading, recitation, vocal music, calisthenetics, and religious instruction was, for the most part, such as would be found in any province outside Quebec. By the 1920s, the department was reporting that Indian schools follow the provincial curricula, but special emphasis is placed on language, reading, domestic science, manual training, and agriculture. One sign that the Department of Indian Affairs recognized wait, one sign that the Department of Indian Affairs recognized that many aspects of the schools, including curriculum, were not satisfactory, came implicitly in the creation in eighteen ninety four of a school branch whose purpose was to ensure a proper return from the large outlay of funds and to watch closely over the carrying out of the details of the policy adopted by the department. Initially, the industrial schools pursued an ambitious list of trades, while the boarding schools trained their students in a less extensive list of skills. In the 20th century, curricula tended to drift in two directions, towards greater conformity with political practices and towards greater emphasis on vocational than academic training. Um, yeah, I'll underline that as well. So it's a shift from... Wait, curricula tended to drift in two directions. Towards greater conformity with provincial practices. So, greater conformity. And towards greater emphasis on vocational rather than academic training. 
emphasis on vocational training. There we go. By 1931, the deputy minister, D.C. Scott, was reporting that Indian schools, by and large, followed the courses of study and used the classroom materials of the provinces in which they were located. In the case of territorial schools, the most common practice was to use the Alberta curriculum. I feel like that is still common in, um, in Canada because Alberta curriculum is recognized pretty, like, I was going to say nationally, but I don't really specifically know if that word means, like, international or, like, just within the country. But I know that the Alberta curriculum applies to um, countries outside of Canada. So that's just a fun fact. When the department began to establish schools in the James Bay area in cooperation with the Anglican and Catholic missionaries, it attempted to introduce a shortened curriculum that emphasized skills compatible with a return to a hunting trapping life in the native settlements. Also, since the earliest years of the century, there was a decreasing stress on academic learning, notably after the shift in 1910 to educating Indian children in preparation for their return to a life on reserve, and again in the 1920s, in response to a growing emphasis on technical training in Canadian schools as a whole. Ottawa was particularly enamored of agricultural instruction, which had the advantage of being cheap to provide, of helping to sustain the operation of the school, and of providing successful in at least a minority of cases. But it was not uncommon, especially in the early decades, for no trades instruction beyond horticulture to be provided in many schools. Following the Second World War, which caused much unease among Canadians about the health of the country's democratic underpinnings, there was also a shift towards greater attention to education for citizenship in a, literal, in a liberal democracy. The scouting and cadet movements, which are recognized as instruments of such curricular thrusts, have been promoted by the Anglicans since the 1920s at least. At the Alert Base School on Vancouver Island, the very Britannic cadet movement was developed under Principal Anne Fields alongside an emphasis on Northwest Coast Indian symbols. During and after the 1940s, scouts and cadets continued to be encouraged, but efforts were also made to develop governing bodies carefully supervised by staff members within the student population. Carefully supervised by staff members within the student Oh, wait. Wait, I fucked that up. Oh, sorry for the swear. I don't know who, what, okay, it's fine. <laughs> okay. During and after the 1940s, scouts and cadets continued to be encouraged, but efforts were also made to develop governing bodies, carefully supervised by staff members within the student population. The article on how to organize a student council in the department's January 1948 Indian School Bulletin noted that it is today widely recognized and accepted that the primary function of the school is to turn out good citizens. The irony of inculcating a sense of democratic citizenship in people who would not enjoy the right to vote when they left school seemed to escape administrators. Down to the 1950s, the distinguishing feature of the instructional program found in native residential schools was its adherence to the half-day system, in which, theoretically, children spent morning or afternoons taking instruction in their classrooms, while devoting the other portion of the day to learning usable skills. The system was copied from the prescription of Egerton Ryerson, 
from the pre-Confederation schools in Canada West and from the more immediate influence of American practice in the 1870s. The theory behind it was sound so far as it went. Academic learning and vocationally oriented instruction would give the student a practical education while supporting the schools financially. In reality, of course, the half-day system was oriented towards extracting free labor, not imparting vocational training. A missionary at Cecilia Jeffrey School near Kenora, Ontario, who claimed of the half-day's work that their training in this respect is equally as important as the work in the classroom, implicitly conceded the opposing argument when he referred to the students spending the other day performing whatever work there may be to do around the building. Ryerson had even allowed himself to hope that with students' chores, manual labor schools might become fiscally independent of both government and churches. That seems like, um, similar to the current prison system, where it's like, oh yeah, this is job training. And it's like, no, it's, it's not. It's legalized slave labor. Like, um, so that whole segregation, or hoping to segregate it from, uh, the government and the church is, to me, reminds me of the privatization of prisons, which we know, um, leads to very corrupt circumstances. Somehow more corrupt than they had previously been, I suppose. I don't know. You get me. <laughs> Okay, where was I? Oh, found it. Nope. Um, oh, found it. From the 1880s onward, bureaucrats of both church and state would have been happy if student labor extracted by means of the half-day system had managed to keep the cost of the schools from rising steadily. Within the half-day system of academic learning and vocational training, there was always a buckskin ceiling over the heads of the native students. From the beginning, it was clear that the department's emphasis was on practical, vocationally-oriented instruction. For example, the Deputy Minister of 1891 agreed with Commissioner Hader Reed that a thorough instruction in industries is of much more value to the ordinary Indian than its literary subjects. By the former, if his training is sound and thorough, he will almost always be able, if he combines industry with his knowledge, to make a living whereas the chances of his doing so in the latter line are to say the least poor. Nor was it long before officials began to urge a concentration on the less skilled and less expensive branches of practical instruction. Even before Scott lowered expectations for the students' economic and social mobility in 1910, it was clearly understood that there were limits to the vocational skills that ought to be taught. Under the influence of the new liberal government and its western interior minister, Clifford Sifton, the department by 1897 was expressing caution about trades instruction as well. To educate children above the possibilities of their station and create a distaste for what is certain to be their environment in life would be not only a waste of money, but doing them an injury instead of conferring a benefit upon them. A Methodist cleric educator agreed in 1906, It is not worth the while trying to teach them trades and professions. In fact, such an education would begin after the boy leaves an industrial school, since the department required the discharge at the age of 18. It was the best for an Indian boy to learn something of farming, gardening, care of stock, and carpenter work. 
His agricultural training should be of an advanced character, covering stock raising, dairying, care, and management of poultry, hogs, and horses. By the end of the Depression decade, Ottawa was more insistent than ever that it was best to concentrate on practical and vocational training. The need of the Indian people for this form of instruction is even greater than that of the white people. Labor opportunities for him during the years that lie immediately ahead must follow such lines as farming, stock, ra stock raising, logging, fishing, and hunting, and tramping. No, trapping. Sorry. <laughs> trapping and hunting. And... Oh, why is this so hard for me to read? Okay. Experiments in providing instruction in trapping and hunting were made in the James Bay area, although similar programs further south had evoked protests. Parents in the Paw region of Manitoba told the principal of the Elkhorn School that they did not send their children to school to be taught how to hunt or trap fish. Such initiatives were consistent with the department's emphasis on the cheap and simple. So I'm going to highlight that part about the parents being like, Bro, why we didn't t send our kids here to learn how to trap or fish? Because, like, they could have fucking been doing that. Oh my god. I don't know if I should be worried about swearing or not. I'm just not gonna worry. And that'll be that. Um, yeah, the parents are like, bro, we could have been teaching our own kids this at home. And given them, like, a sense of community and self-love and self-worth and, like, you know, like, not had our kids go to residential school to grow their own food, living in, like, an awful, musty building with, like, abusive nuns, like. Okay. <laughs> I went off on a tangent. In practice, Ottawa's theories about industrial education translated as rudimentary vocational training. Wherever agriculture seemed viable, the emphasis was on horticulture and stock. On the West Coast, it made a good deal of sense to teach fishing skills as well, and at Allert Bay in the 1930s, Ansfield taught the boys in the graduating, or at least leaving, class to construct a fishing boat, which they took with them. How freaking weird is it, though, that as a res at a residential school, they were taught how to make a boat when it's like... Well, who... I just... I'm so stunned at these colonizers' belief that they are innately better. So much so that they see a thriving community... And they're like, oh, dang, maybe uh, we could trade them, like, kettles and shit for fish. And then they're like, sweet, now that we've established trade, we're going to kidnap your kids and uh, teach them how to fish. Like, oh, my goodness. <sighs> he recognized, recalled heredity, Niska's chief, Bert McKay, we were not farmers, but seafarers. You know what? Valid. Because maybe that's more like... Well, not more like. What I said earlier was still true. 
but it is in a way specifying the curriculum to uh, fit the students' cultural and societal needs, while at the same time telling them that they are less worthy. I don't know, this whole residential school thing is like full of awful paradoxes. Some innovative versions of agricultural training were also used. At Lebray and Morley in the late 1930s, mink farming was tried, while at Brandon beekeep oh, while at Brandon beekeeping was attempted. The Anglicans at Chute, uh, the Anglicans at Chutla School in Carcross, Yukon. Yeah, Car Okay, okay, I got this. The Anglicans at Chutla School in Carcross, Yukon kept goats for a time, while students at the Mount Elgin Institute in Ontario were said to have responded enthusiastically to the wrought metal projects on which they worked in the late 1930s. In keeping with the European doctrine of separate spheres for women, training for girls emphasized domestic skills almost exclusively. When a Methodist considered what skills should be taught, his response is a list of household and nurturing tasks. And here I will read a list. I'm not sure if I'll read the whole thing. We'll see how far I get. Housework, mending, sewing, darning, use of thimbles, needles, scissors, brooms, brushes, knives, forks, and spoons. The cooking of meats and vegetables, the recipes for various dishes, bread making, buns, pies, materials used in quantity. Washing, ironing, bluing, and uh, uh, what clothing should be boiled and what not, why white may be boiled and colored not, how to take stains from white clothing, how to wash colored clothes, difference between hard and soft water, dairying, milking, care of milk, cream churning, housework, sweeping, scrubbing, dusting, care of furniture, books, linen, etc. They should also be taught garden work, which is what the boys were being taught. Just, okay. Our women have to do a great deal of garden work, and it is of the greatest importance that the Indian girl should know how. Instruction should be given in the elements of physiology and hygiene, explaining particularly proper habits in eating and drinking, cleanliness, ventilation, the manner of treating emergency cases such as hemorrhage, fainting, drowning, sunstroke, nursing, and general care of the sick. Such an all-round training fits a girl to be mistress of her home very much better than if she spent her whole time in the classroom. I don't even have comments. If all the students had a buckskin ceiling above them, the girls was fringed and tasseled. There were notable exceptions to this limited regimen of vocational training. In a large number of the early industrial schools in particular, there was considerable emphasis on instruction in carpentry, blacksmithing, and tinsmithing, especially before the First World War. In a few western and northern schools, thanks usually to enthusiasm of the local proprietor or a particular school official, printing and other aspects of the literary trade were sometimes taught. Newspaperman P.G. Laurie at Battleford persuaded Principal Clark to offer instruction in typesetting and printing and Laurie provided equipment and instruction for a time. The Re Regina and Albany schools also carried on a monthly school magazine with student labor. Regina's was named significantly Progress. Port Simpson's was named Nanaqua. Alert Bay's The Thunderbird. 
Blue Quills, Moccasin Telegraph, Kootenay's Residential Schools, the Chupka, the Albany's Western Eagle. At the Kitimat Institution, a few of the girls learned something of the printing trade while producing a six- or eight-page quarterly that combined local news with printed historical sketches, Indian legends, church news, shipping news, births, marriages, deaths, and railway surveys. Northern Lights at Chutla had a similar mix. Although one staff took over the selection of articles and compositor work, it became noticeably more oriented to church than to school children's interests. That sentence didn't make much sense to me, but I read it as it was written. Such initiatives were very much the exception, however. In general, residential schools provided training and domestic skills for girls, and in lines of work that would prepare boys for lives as farmers, fishermen, laborers, or occasionally carpenters. There were exceptional cases of residential school students who proceeded to higher education and sometimes to professional life. Church and government publications tended to trumpet the news of this minority at every opportunity. Hader Reed and Father Huguenard were very proud when Dan Kennedy, the young Assiniboine who at 12 was lassoed, roped, and taken to the government school at Labray, went on to complete his education at St. Boniface College. Wow, they really are friggin' proud of how much the child wanted to stay with his family. Like, <laughs> what? They were less thrilled when Kennedy used his newfound knowledge to carry the Plains Indian campaign against government attempts to suppress traditional summer dance ceremonials to the officials themselves. More typical of the highly schooled mon minority was Redfern Lutit who went on from the Anglican Institution in Chapleau, Ontario, to Wycliffe College in Toronto, with financial assistance from a, a church group in the United Kingdom. He taught school in Northern Ontario for a time, and experienced a long and respective career as an ordained priest of the Church of England. Peter Kelly, who was to play an important role in the Pacific Coast as a Methodist, and later the United Church, I don't know, okay, I need to stop being snarky, I was going to say I don't know why that's relevant, but I suppose it is, received church support for an advanced theological training too. Several members of the Cuthand and Akno families in Saskatchewan followed their respected Canon Edwards Akno into holy orders, though not all of them went through residential schools. Ahab Spence, who was ha who was to have a career as a residential school administrator, Anglican clergyman, and university instructor, was able to pursue advanced education thanks to both his church and an unknown-to-him benefactor, who later became his father-in-law. Unfortunately, a Dan Kennedy or a Redfern Lutet were exceptions. Those who went on to high school and university studies were part of a small minority who experienced advanced academic successes often against the wishes, and certainly without the financial assistance, of the Department of Indian Affairs. Departmental policy was stated bluntly in 1904, when an official briefed the, de the Deputy Minister with the statement that there are no funds especially provided for higher education, although some bands had assisted individuals. Even this form of self-help was subject to departmental interference, however, when the Blackfoot Band in 1940 voted to assist a number of young people in, in taking high school courses, the department overruled it. Ottawa did offer an alternative. 
The vote will be permitted, however, for those wishing to attend either a technical school or take one of the courses provided at an agricultural college. For a time in the interwar period, Indian Affairs provided limited assistance to especially gifted students who proceeded beyond elementary grades, but this support was never substantial. For example, in 1931, before the retrenchment caused by the Great Depression took hold, only 260 young men and women were helped to continue their studies or to establish homes, at a time when total enrollment in residential schools was 7,831. So that was a long sentence. Um, out of 7,831, only 260 of those students uh, went on to continue their studies or to establish homes. I wonder what happened to those that didn't establish homes. Even this meager help was terminated owing to the financial stringency of the Second World War. In the more prosperous 1950s, tuition grants for high school and post-secondary education were restored, but Ottawa was careful to insist that a tuition grant is not a statutory right of the Indians. It is a service which may be granted at the wish of the minister to a people who is capable of benefiting from that assistance. Benefiting from that assistance... But, like, only if it also benefits the government. Because if it only benefits the the student and the student's community, then, like, that's not cool. <laughs> Most residential school students would have been under no illusions about their limited educational potential. The fact that their vocational training was preparing them for modest economic successes was signaled by various forms of apprenticeship that were used in the early days of industrial schools. On the whole, summer apprenticeship for boys and opportunities to be out at service for girls served little educational purpose, whatever help they might have been to employers who obtained cheap labor by them. The theory underlying arrangements by which older boys helped local farmers during the summer and at harvest time was that they were refining their work skills through practical application in day-to-day -day farming operations. Needless to say, casual employment, apprenticeship, and the outing and the outing system all interfered with the academic program of the schools. Girls who were out at service, or the three boys who had not attended classes for the past 18 months, being engaged at housework instead, could not advance much academically if they were not in class. Often, principals in Indian Affairs showed more anxiety about supervising students who were working outside the school than they did over the effect of those absences on schoolwork. During the 20th century, the focus of vocational training at residential schools shifted, although there was not much difference in the outcome overall. First, the redefinition of the school's purpose in 1910 to prepare students for a successful return to adult life in Indian, in Indian country meant a scaling down of vocational programs such as trades meant a scaling down of vocational programs such as trades instruction, apprenticeship for boys, and the outing system in general. The greatly increased emphasis on vocational instruction in the particularly minded 1930s, practically minded 1930s, meant that there was a concerted effort to equip many of the residential schools with shops and instructors who could prepare the students with the job market skills that Indian Affairs now recognized belatedly 
were required in a world where urbanization was far advanced and farming was in decline. However, Ottawa's attempt to place greater stress on vocational training was hampered by the financial stringency of the, of the Depression and the Second World War. By the time renewed post-war prosperity permitted a dramatic expansion in school funding in the mid and late 1950s, the department was bending its efforts to find ways to get out of the residential school businesses, not to improve its vocational or academic offerings. The sorry tale of lost opportunities in vocational training simply epitomized the inadequate educational performance of the residential school system. Measures of that failure in academic and vocational education were numerous and pointed. One indicator was the volume and timber of Indian complaints about the instruction that children received in the schools. Sometimes the criticisms were general in nature, and often they were followed by a refusal to surrender their children to an unpopular principal. I'm gonna underline that one. Or, I mean, highlight it. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Um... Let's see. And often they were followed by a refusal to surrender their children. And at other times, parents complained specifically if their children were kept from the classroom by too much housework. So parents complained if their children were kept from the classroom by too much housework. There we go. Or other labor. Okay. Or other labor. And in some cases, they had reason to complain, an experienced missionary thought. The father of pupil number 97 at the Battleford School told the Indian agent that he would not send his son back because he had not been learning there. After five years in attendance, he cannot read, speak, or write English, nearly all his time having been devoted to herding and caring for cattle instead of learning a trade or being otherwise educated. Such employment he can get at home. And Chief Rattlesnake told a meeting of Presbyterian school workers in 1912 that he wanted children to be taught so that they could help the old Indians. Children were not learning fast enough at Crowstand School. By 1923, even a missionary worker was publicly criticizing the schools for their failure to educate. Some parents forwarded an, a litany of complaints in which excessive work and inadequate instruction were prominent. In 1927, a deputation from the Onion Lake Reserve put it to the Anglican school overseer that when the Indian super... No, I can't read this. Okay. Deep breath. Okay. When the Indians surrendered the land now attached to the new school, they stipulated that different trades such as blacksmithing, carpentry, etc. were to be taught to the pupils. The Anglican field secretary responded that in the church's records, no mention was made of this condition whatever. In the high Arctic, parents of children at the Aklavik, okay, so parents of the ch parents of children at the Aklavik school claim their children are taught nothing useful in the schools, and that when they return home, they're useless for work in the bush. I think maybe I'm I'm going to be highlighting at the same time. Well, actually, I can't multitask, apparently. Claim their children are taught nothing useful in schools, and when they return home, they are useless for working the bush. If the agenda of residential schools was to create a white person, if the agenda was to make 
Indians white, or indigenous people white, and to systematically eradicate their culture, then even though they are not successful at teaching these students or teaching these children um, writing or English or anything, they were successful in alienating the child from their community, and so their agenda was met of de-Indianizing the student. <sighs> and in Saskatchewan in 1954, a mother thought that there would there should be a greater emphasis on speaking English in the residential schools, where the children often spoke Cree among themselves and the staff often spoke French. The single exception to the string of complaints about teaching concerned the residential school's music programs. Both students and staff seemed to agree that singing, band, and other forms of musical instruction and entertainment were bright spots in an otherwise dismal tale. Also revealing were the statistics on students' lack of progress through the grades. Every indicator of academic performance throughout the history of these institutions pointed to the fact that pupils did not advance through the successful levels of elementary schooling. Throughout their history, residential schools reported that students were bunched in the lowest three standards, indicating a student body suffering severely from what is technically termed age grade re oh age grade and then the R word. But I, I know it just means like regression or like to be slowed or like to be held back. Still caught off guard though. A full quarter century after the modern industrial school experiment began, the annual report of the Department of Indian Affairs illustrated this phenomenon. At the Libray School, 93% of the school's 235 students were in Standard 1, with 43 and 44 in the next two levels. Dunbow in Alberta had 46 in the first three levels out of a total population of 66. Red Deer reported 55 of 61 students in the first three standards, with the others divided evenly between 4th and 5th standard. At the Crosby Girls' Home in Port Simpson, 33 of 49 were below standard 4, whereas Albany reported better results with only 20, sorry, 26 of 37 in the first three, 10 in standard 4, and 1 scholar in standard 5. At the Anglican Blood School, 24 of 36 were below standard four. The pattern persisted in less severe form even after increased government attention and funding in the 1950s meant that the schools were academically much better staffed, equipped, and funded. An investigation by Father Andre Renault of the Oblates, Oblates? Oblates Central Supervi Supervisory Board I don't know why I can't read. Oh my goodness. Oh, it's all about practicing, I suppose. Um, where was I? Okay. An investigation by Father Andre Renault of the Oblate Central Supervisory Board in the mid and late 1950s revealed general academic underachievement that differed only to a modest degree from that turned up in Western schools four decades earlier. 
It was not especially helpful to do what a Jesuit a Spanish planned in 1958 in response to poor performance by the school students on IQ tests. He proposed to drill the grade 9 and 10 classes on answers to try to get an improvement. A professional educator at Chutla School discovered that measurement over an eight-month period showed that the same rate of learning as non-native populations, and concluded that the language handicap under which Indian children operate is clearly discernible in both intelligence tests. Clearly, by the late 1950s or 1960s, bureaucrats and missionaries knew that the residential schools were inadequate to equip their students with the academic skills they would need to succeed later in life. Unfortunately, the performance level on the vocational training side was no better. As an Indian Affairs bureaucrat had noted in an 1897 memorandum for a skeptical Clifford Sifton, graduates of the residential school who tried to make a life for themselves either in the Euro-Canadian economy or back among their own people did not fare well economically. Since residential schools never attempted to educate and train more than about one-third of all Inuit and Indian children, it was not fair or accurate to attribute Native people's vocational failures solely to these institutions, but it is accurate to say that there was little evidence that Native children who had attended a residential school experienced markedly greater economic successes than their brothers and sisters who had been spared the experience. And for the bureaucrats and politicians evaluating the whole operation in Ottawa, the determining factor was expense. Oh, so I guess that is important because something says the determining factor. You know, that's uh, probably relevant. Okay. Adequate school performance in preparing their inmates for the working world meant that Indian and Inuit, because they were not becoming self-sufficient in large enough numbers, remained a major financial liability for the federal government. Since Ottawa's primary purpose in establishing and funding residential schools had always been to equip natives to support themselves and thereby stop costing the treasury money, this deficiency was viewed as most damning. Residential schools simply did not work economically or academically, period. I'm also going to highlight that. Residential schools simply did not work economically or academically, period, for emphasis. Unfortunately, government's analysis in response to these indications of the system's failure were usually counterproductive. Since both bureaucrats and church people had at best a rudimentary notion of the mechanics of pace in the process of acculturation, they tended to react to disappointing results with condemnation and compulsion. This was so even where inspection and evaluation highlighted deficits in the school's operation. It was simply easier, not to mention all too human, for Indian Affairs and the churches to conclude that the problem with Indian schools was Indians. The parents took no interest. Indeed, sometimes they actively insisted what Ottawa knew was in their children's best interest. What does that mean? Over time, the incidents of comments about the innate mental quickness and the ability of Native peoples declined, and slurs about mental and moral inferiority of the race increased as failure led frustration. The blaming the victim syndrome might not have been invented by Indian affairs and missionaries, but they certainly refined and developed it to levels previously unmatched. When Indian affairs concluded that the trouble with some Indian policy or other was Indians, 
the department reached for its favorite tool, compulsion, to make the recalcitrant. Rec wait, what does it what? Recalcitrant. Okay. Um, compulsion to make the recalcitrants adjust their behavior. For example, a noticeable response to the province of Canada's failure to make the new manual labor schools of the 1840s and 1850s attractive to Indian communities had been a shift in 1857 towards removing Indians by a process known as enfranchisement. The 1857 initiative, revealingly named the Gradual Civilization Act, I'm going to also underline that, Gradual Civilization Act, was followed up in the Indian Act and its successive revisions. Briefly, between 1876 and 1880, legislation even provided that an Indian who obtained a university degree or become a legal professional, including notary public or minister of the gospel, automatically ceased to be Indian and was enfranchised as an ordinary citizen of Canada. In the early decades of the 20th century, when Ottawa was especially disgruntled with the Indians' refusal to volunteer for their own elimination by asking to have their Indian status stripped from them in the enfranchisement process, Parliament provided for compulsory group enfranchisement for Indians at the benefit of the minister. The educational parallel to this oppressive lunacy was an effort to compel attendance at both residential and day schools. Many of the schools that were opened in the 1880s and 1890s had severe difficulties attracting and retraining students. Oh no, it says retaining. Difficulties attracting and retaining students. Few missionaries recognized, as did Hugh McKay at Round Lake in the Prairies, that Indian families resisted boarding in industrial schools because they were an organized attempt to educate and colonize the people against their will. Most principals and church officials at head office favored government compulsion to force Indian parents to have their children taught, not just in the day schools, but about which missionaries had long complained, um, but also in the residential institutions that were supposed to have been an answer to the problem of inadequate attendance at day schools. The evolution of the attendance clauses in the Indian Act shows both government frustration and inability to compel attendance at the residential schools. As noted in Chapter 5, the Department had initiated limited compulsory attendance provisions in the 1894 Amendment of the Indian Act and in, and in an order in Council. Clearly, this policy did not have a hoped-for effect. On Vancouver Island, Presbyterian missionaries complained in the later 1890s that compulsory, oh, compulsory attendance provisions were practically very little use, because the agent does not insist on the Indians sending their children to the boarding school. And by 1906, the Anglican Mission Board for the Diocese of Calgary was protesting that, in southern Alberta, parents send their children to school when it suits them to do so, and they keep them at home for the same reason. The only exception to this rule is the children are allowed to please themselves wherever they go or not. These complaints arose in spite of repeated efforts to stiffen the early provisions. The 1906 amendment, for example, reiterated that the 1894 terms as part of the Indian Act. Wait, is that the, is that the end of the sentence? It is. A 1906 amendment, for example, reiterated the 19 1894 terms as part of the Indian Act. 
It also renewed the provision that annuities of children in schools could be directed as Ottawa saw fit. Such changes potentially gave agents a financial cudgel to hold over uncooperative parents' heads. If your children are not sent voluntarily, their annuities will be withheld. Um, okay, hold on. Da, da, da. Uh, decision, reiterated Indian Act. So changes gave agents financial credentials to hold. Okay, I'm highlighting if your children are not sent voluntarily, their annuities will be withheld. In 1920, more compulsion was introduced. The Indian Act was amended to make attendance compulsory between the ages of 7 and 15 to authorize anyone appointed a, a truant officer to enter any place where he has reason to believe there are Indian children between the ages of 7 and 15 years and to prescribe penalties for Indian parents who refuse to comply with the notice to make their children available for school. The 1920 Amending Act also transferred from orators and council to statute powers as to apply student annuities and interest to the operation of the school. The power to remove children arbitrarily provoked protests from the chiefs of the Oka, and it says in parentheses, Kanestake and St. Regis, hold on, I got this, and St. Regis, Aquisene, okay, Power to remove children arbitrarily provoked protests in the chiefs of the Oka Kanesteke. Oh my god, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. <clears throat> <coughs> Ooh, my bad. <clears throat> okay. Kanesteke. Kanesteke. Okay, and the second one is Akweseni. Akweseni. Okay. The power to remove children arbitrarily provoked protests from the chiefs of the Oka, Kinestike, and St. Regis, Aquesene bands. <laughs> we did it. In the 1930s, the period during which attendance was normally compulsory was extended to the age of 16, and the department was empowered where it saw fit to order an Indian child to stay in school longer, the maximum age being 18. In 1933, officers of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were explicitly made truant officers. The first stirrings of the Canadian welfare state in 1945 provided government and missionaries with another lever to push parents into placing their children in residential schools. The Family Allowance Act, which... We got this. Highlighting. My highlighter is really cute. It's pink. Okay. The Family Allowance Act contained clauses that required school attendance of school-aged children if their parents were to receive new baby bonus. Parental refusal to enroll a child or to return the student promptly after vacation should, officialdom pointed out, result in the immediate cancellation of the allowance. The course of aspects of the attendance provisions stood unaltered in substance by the overhaul of the Indian Act in 1951. As with so many aspects of Canadian Indian policy in the area of compulsory attendance at Indian schools, it is much easier to legislate than to enforce. I feel like... Oh, one sec. Legislate than to enforce. I feel like that's a really good um, observation.
I don't know if I have anything more than that. That's just a good observation. It is clear from both schools' officials' complaints and Indians' recollections that effective compulsion remained much more a wish than a reality. Zealous agents, such as R.N. Wilson on the Blood Reserve in Alberta, could and did use their office as justice 